Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In May 1978, a package wrapped in a brown paper bag was found on the campus of Chicago's Northwestern University. The return address listed Northwestern engineering professor Buckley Christ, so school officials returned the package to his office. Professor Christ was confused, though, and a little bit suspicious, because he had never seen this package before. Christ gingerly cut away the paper wrapping and found a handcrafted wooden box. Inscribed on the box was the word open. Christ immediately called security. Off-duty police officer Terry Mark responded. He turned the box over in his hands and then decided to open it. As he did, it exploded with a thundering boom. Inside the box was a nine-inch piece of pipe packed with explosive powder rigged to ignite with match heads, a primitive bomb. And despite the big bang, it was a dud. The security guard escaped with just a minor hand injury. University officials and police shrugged off the incident. They said it seemed like a one-off anomaly. No big deal. After collecting all the bits and pieces of the bomb, they dumped it in the garbage. A year later, in 1979, a second bomb at Northwestern injured a student. Officials now understood they were dealing with something bigger. Various law enforcement agencies were called in to investigate, but the bomber eluded them. Over the next 15 years, he continued to send bombs around the country to professors and executives. And it wasn't until the early 1990s that the FBI started closing in on their mystery man. I'm Kathy Gonzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On today's episode, we're looking back at one of the largest and most expensive manhunts in FBI history. You'll hear from two of the FBI agents who were instrumental in the investigation that finally led to the capture of the Unabomber. Six months after the second bomb was delivered to Northwestern University in 1979, another bomb detonated in the luggage compartment of an American Airlines plane that was flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. The passenger compartment filled up with smoke, But luckily, the device hadn't worked properly, so the plane was able to land safely and no one was seriously injured. But that was three bombs in a year and a half, the latest one going off on an airplane filled with passengers. What could have been a large-scale disaster was only averted because the device was defective. What would happen if the bomber figured out how to do it right next time? This is when the FBI set up a small task force to start investigating the crimes. They called the file Unabomb because the target so far had been a university and an airline. UN for university and A for airline. Over the next eight years, nine more bombs that were getting more sophisticated. They were either mailed or delivered to targets around the country. In 1980, Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines, suffered cuts and burns over much of his body after a package was left in the mailbox at his Chicago-area home. Inside the package, Wood found a book called Ice Brothers. When he opened the book, a bomb went off. Packages with bombs were delivered to the University of Utah, Vanderbilt, and Berkeley. 
and a Boeing factory in Washington was also targeted. In some cases, the bombs were detonated safely. In other cases, they exploded, injuring university staff and students. Whoever was sending these packages went to great efforts not to get caught. The bombs had been vacuumed to remove any DNA, hairs, or fiber, and tool marks had been removed. Many of the bombs were handcrafted out of wood, and while that's not as powerful as a metal pipe bomb, that made the devices more difficult to trace, since the parts were homemade instead of purchased. So far, eight people had been hurt, but luckily, no one had been killed. In December 1985, seven years after the first bomb, the owner of a computer store in Sacramento, California, went out the back door of his shop around noon with car keys in one hand, a book in the other. That's when he spotted something on the ground. 38-year-old Hugh Scrutton saw what looked like a scrap piece of lumber, but he wasn't sure, so Scrutton bent over to take a closer look. When he did, the bomb exploded, hitting the shop owner directly in the chest. He was taken to hospital, but pronounced dead. The first fatality linked to the Unabomber. The next year, another computer store was targeted, this time in Salt Lake City, Utah. But on this day, someone finally caught a glimpse of the bomber. From inside the building, an employee noticed a shadowy figure walking down a driveway toward the back parking lot. Retired FBI agent Max Knoll says the employee went closer to the window to investigate. And she saw this figure in a hooded, gray hooded sweatshirt, aviator sunglasses, and he was carrying a white canvas bag. And she was interested. What's he doing? And to her astonishment, he walked right over to the front of her car. He was less than three or four feet from her through a window. He was unaware that she was standing there in the window watching him. He knelt down beside her left front tire. He opened the white canvas bag and he took out what she described to be a road hazard. Two two two-by-fours nailed together with really shiny nails protruding. The woman turned to her boss and loudly said, hey, look at this guy. Her voice was loud enough to be heard through the closed window, and the shadowy figure in the hoodie and sunglasses looked up. He dropped the two-by-fours and calmly walked away. A short time later, the owner's son, Gary Wright, drove into the parking lot, saw the piece of wood left by the hooded man, and walked over to check it out. So he knelt down beside it, and when he touched it, it blew up. And explosives follow the path of least resistance. So it didn't blow a big hole in the ground. It came up off the ground into him, and it blew wood and shrapnel and metal all into his. Gary still doesn't have full use of his arm today uh, because of it, but he survived it. The injuries for Gary Wright were devastating, but it was an important moment in the case. It was the first time the bomber was spotted and would lead to the infamous composite drawing of a suspect in aviator sunglasses and a hoodie. Not that it helped much. After that sighting and the bombing in 1987, the Unabomber seemed to disappear. No devices were reported in 1988 or 1989, and the case remained quiet during the first few years of the 90s. The person known as the Unabomber seemed to have vanished. And many people thought he died or gone to prison or just quit bombing. But in 1993, uh, June of 1993, two bombs were sent 
uh, one to uh, a geneticist working for the University of California Medical Facility at his Tiburon, California home, uh, Dr. Charles Epstein, and did serious damage to Dr. Epstein. Uh, the next day, all the way across the country at Yale University, uh, a very well-known computer scientist, uh, David Galerter, uh, received a bomb in the mail. It was exactly the same as the one that Dr. Epstein had received the day before, and it did serious damage to uh, him also. Around the same time, June 1993, the New York Times received a letter postmarked from Sacramento that appeared to be from the Unabomber. It claimed the bombs had been delivered by an anarchist group called FC, or Freedom Club. But investigators remained confident that the bomber was actually just one person. And now they had a bigger concern. The letter also contained a threat. It warned of an upcoming newsworthy event. After six years, the Unabomber was back. And not just that. During the hiatus, his bomb-making skills had improved drastically. The bombs were now smaller and much more powerful. And it seemed like only a matter of time before something more deadly happened. 1993 had begun in the U.S. with a leadership change. Bill Clinton was sworn in as president, the first Democrat to hold office in 12 years. Clinton appointed Janet Reno as his attorney general, the first woman to hold the position. And just two months later, she was thrust into the national spotlight following the federal raid of the Waco, Texas compound of the Branch Davidians. In a dramatic televised news conference, Reno took full responsibility for the botched raid, which ended when flames swept through the compound, killing Branch Davidian leader David Koresh, along with 75 others. This is a subject we covered in episode 27 of History of the 90s. Reno's candor at that news conference was seen as refreshing, but the luster faded pretty quickly, as criticism about the FBI raid in Waco continued to grow. So when the Unabomber struck again in 1993, for the first time in six years, and this time with more sophisticated devices, Reno made the case a top priority. She asked FBI Director Louis Free to set up a multi-agency task force that included investigators from the FBI, the ATF, and the post office. They would work together under one roof in San Francisco, FBI agent Max Knoll, who you heard from earlier, was grudgingly appointed to the task force. He says no one wanted to work the Unabomber case. Because it had been going on since 1978, and there was no um, conclusion or no uh, resolution uh, uh, in the, anyone could see. It was just an unsolvable case. There was very little evidence. The Smith Corona typewriter, that was really the only piece of forensic evidence Uh, that we had linking all of these things together and finding a antique Smith Corona circa 1925 to 30 typewriter with pica style type and 2.54 millimeter spacing uh, was virtually impossible. Where, Where do you find such a thing? Agent Knoll was joined by about 20 other FBI and ATF agents along with U.S. postal inspectors. One of the first things the task force did was reach out to the public for help. The FBI offered a $1 million reward in exchange for any information leading to the arrest of the serial bomber who had been terrorizing executives and college campuses for 15 years. FBI agent Terry Turchi was called in to oversee the task force as supervisor in charge of operational management. 
he too joined the investigation reluctantly. Turchi says from the moment he came on board, identifying the Unabomber was the number one priority of the FBI. The Unabomber was not only a serial killer, a serial terrorist, bomber, but had he been successful with what he wanted to do with uh, with the airplanes, he would have also become a mass murderer. And that, that's a very unusual combination. We, we uh, just, again, we very seldom face a case that we can't solve over that long a period of time, but we hardly ever have had a case where you're dealing with both a mass murderer and a serial bomber. And from a perspective of uh, a behavioral perspective and a psychological perspective, there's so much in that um, kind of a formula that complicates it for uh, putting together strategies and trying to keep people focused on the kind of person you might find and how to separate that person from the pack when you find them. You see, there was real worry that whoever was behind the string of attacks was getting more sophisticated and might try again to plant a bomb on an airplane full of people. In order to crack the case open, Turchi and the rest of the task force decided it was time to do things completely different. First of all, a lot had changed technologically in the time between the 1987 bombing and the two in June 1993, mainly computers. The information collected so far during the Unabom investigation was kept in file folders in FBI field offices around the country. So one of the first things Turchi did was gather up all of the information and have it entered into an online case management system. Here's Agent Max Knoll. They ordered for all of us computers. We didn't have computers. Agents previous to this was try, were trying to do this on three by five index cards in a little brown box on their desk. So they downloaded some 89,000 investigative documents. And that's just documents, not numbers of pages, okay? And now we were at our desk with a computer and a complete text retrieval program, but most of us were experienced agents that had been around for a while. We didn't know the first thing about computers. I didn't know how to computer turn. So we had to be trained in how to use the computer, but then we could create our own investigative files for what we in turn were looking at. It made it a lot easier, but it took almost a year, but it was just frustrating because we knew we were going against time because of what he said in that letter to the New York Times that uh, he was getting ready to begin his campaign of killing people again. By the end of 1994, the task force was making progress and was feeling more positive as the pieces were coming together. But then the investigation was dealt a massive blow. 50-year-old advertising executive Thomas Mosser was at home with his family on a Saturday morning in December 1994. He had just finished reading a book to his 15-month-old daughter, Kelly, when he went into the kitchen and picked up a package that had been delivered the day before. Looking at the package, he called out to his wife, Susan, who was in the living room with the baby. He said, I don't recognize the return address. She answered, neither do I. Seconds later, a massive explosion. The package had been rigged to detonate when opened. Susan Mosser and baby Kelly were saved by a fireplace between the kitchen and the living room. Upstairs, their other daughter, 13-year-old Kim, and a friend who had slept over were also unharmed physically. Susan took the baby outside and called 911. When she went back inside, the kitchen was filled with a white powdery mist. 
making it difficult to see anything. As the mist settled slowly, inch by inch, she saw the kitchen was destroyed and her husband was lying face up on the floor. His torso was covered with blood. She lay a baby blanket over him and said, you're going to be okay, Tom, help is coming. Help did arrive within minutes, but Tom was not okay. Severely injured by flying nails and chopped razor blades, he died in hospital a short time later. FBI officials confirmed at a news conference the next day the explosion that killed Tom Mosser was related to the Unabomber because the bomb was built with similar materials and had a similar sophisticated design. But once again, they said they were unsure of the motive and they weren't sure what connected Mosser to the other victims. This had long been something that had stumped law enforcement. The people the Unabomber targeted seemed incredibly random. They had no connection to one another that anyone could figure out. None of the victims knew each other. None of them had been to school together or had a fraternity membership or worked in business or anything like that. So far, the targets had been airline executives, scholars who had made significant advances in computer sciences, psychology and genetics, and staff at computer stores. Mosser didn't fit any of those categories. He was in advertising promoted earlier that year to executive vice president and general manager at Young and Rubicam, one of the largest advertising firms in the world, with clients that included Xerox, Philip Morris, and Kraft General Foods. With the death of Thomas Mosser weighing heavily on Agent Turchi and his task force, they continued with the tedious work of the case. Turchi asked that all of the physical evidence collected over the years by various agencies and police forces be gathered up and sent to the FBI's main lab, and each piece was re-examined. Pairs of agents were also sent out into the field to revisit each and every bombing location and re-interview all witnesses. Plus, thousands of calls were continuously coming in from the public on the FBI's 1-800 tip line, and each one of those needed to be investigated. Then, in April 1995, another deadly bombing. It has become all too familiar. A meticulously wrapped package arrives in the mail, exploding when it's opened. The latest victim, Gilbert Murray, president of the California Forestry Association, killed by a bomb that officials believe was sent by the Unabomber, the most elusive terrorist bomber in U.S. history. A heavy package the size of a shoebox was delivered to the office of 47-year-old Gilbert Murray. The package had been left outside the main entrance to the California Forestry Association. After the receptionist brought it inside, office staff passed it around and jokingly said it looked like a bomb. The receptionist tried to open the package but couldn't, so she went to Murray's office where he offered to help. When he opened the package, the explosion sounded like a sonic boom. The interior windows of the 5,000-square-foot office were blown apart. Two doors were blown off their hinges, and a small fire was started. Murray was pronounced dead at the scene. Amazingly, though, no one else in the office was physically injured. Again, FBI agents struggled to find any kind of connection between Murray and previous victims. But now investigators theorize the Unabomber may be fascinated with wood. The latest victim was a lobbyist for wood products. Another victim was named Wood. Twigs were included with one bomb, and some of the bomb parts are made of wood. With the latest incident, that made it two bombs in four months, and both were deadly. 
the stakes had never been higher for FBI agents on the trail of the Unabomber. By the summer of 1995, a few months after the deadly explosion that killed Gilbert Murray, the FBI started something new. Using the thousands of documents entered into the database, they began to identify people who were common to multiple crime scenes. You see, while investigating a crime scene, like, say, Northwestern University, police agents would have talked to witnesses and other people connected to the location. Maybe cleaners, construction workers, students, or other professors. As old case files were entered into the database, so were the names of those people. Anyone whose name came up more than once would be reinvestigated. Plus, thousands of tips were still pouring into the FBI's 1-800-TIP line. To deal with the growing case file, the FBI task force was expanded from 20 people to over 100 people. Then, in June 1995, the Unabomber sent packages to the Washington Post and the New York Times. Inside, a 56-page document typed and single-spaced entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. There were also 11 pages of footnotes. Along with what became known as the Unabomber's Manifesto was a letter that said if the Post and the Times published the document in its entirety, the Unabomber would renounce terrorism and stop harming people. If they refused, he would start building his next bomb. And this time, he would target an airplane. The Unabomber said he would wait three months for a decision. Here's former FBI agent Terry Turchi. And the first thing we noticed is, wow, this is passionate and it is detailed and uh, it is it is just significant. And we decided we're going to recommend to the director of the FBI and to Janet Reno that we publish the Unabomber's manifesto. And we're going to do that because we think that it is reflective of how this individual has felt for many, many years. And so reflective of how he feels, he's probably shared his his thoughts and his passions with other people. Both Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno approved. And they met several times that summer with the publishers of The Washington Post and The New York Times, who agreed to go along with the decision. It was an extraordinary move, and every detail of its execution needed to be thoroughly thought through. It was finally decided the manifesto would be printed as a standalone section separate from the regular news and opinion pages, and it would be set in a special typeface. It was also decided the document would only run in the Washington Post and not the New York Times, but the rival papers agreed to split the cost. The day before it was released, Post publisher Donald Graham and Times publisher Arthur Sulzberger issued a joint statement that announced the decision by the two papers to print an unaltered copy of the Unabomber's manuscript. The two publishers said that after consultation with law enforcement officials, they had agreed to publish the document for public safety reasons and not for journalistic reasons. He is the most wanted man in the U.S., the Unabomber. For 17 years, he has eluded a massive manhunt. And now the philosophy behind his deadly campaign has been published by the Washington Post and the New York Times. In a rambling treatise titled Industrial Society and Its Future, the Unabomber complains the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. 
The publication of the manifesto set off a heated debate in the journalistic community about whether the Post and the Times made the right decision. Some argued that terrorist threats shouldn't be allowed to control the behavior of a news organization. They worried the decision would put other news organizations at risk of blackmail in the future. But to put it in perspective, this wasn't the first time that something like this had happened. In 1976, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and Los Angeles Times published a statement by Croatian nationalists who had hijacked a TWA flight that was en route from LaGuardia to Chicago. They had threatened to kill its 92 passengers if their statement drawing attention to Croatia's struggle for independence from Tito's Yugoslavia wasn't printed. The hijackers diverted the plane to Paris. Then, after a 12-hour standoff on the tarmac at Charles de Gaulle Airport, the hijackers surrendered. All of the hostages survived. So let's take a minute to examine the document at the heart of this controversy. As you heard in that news clip, the 35,000-page essay with 232 numbered paragraphs is called Industrial Society and Its Future. It begins like this, quote, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering, and in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world, end quote. It went on to say the Industrial Revolution has led to the growth of a technological system that suppresses individual freedom and destroys nature, and it called for a worldwide revolution against the system and a return to wild nature. Again, the bomber claims to be part of an anarchist group called the Freedom Club, which predicted that these centralized systems of control would eventually modify human beings by psychological or biological methods. According to an article in The Atlantic, the Unabomber's manifesto was actually greeted in 1995 by many thoughtful people as a work of genius and as quite sane. In the New York Times, the environmental writer Kirkpatrick Sale wrote that the Unabomber is a rational man and his principal beliefs are, if hardly mainstream, entirely reasonable. The science writer Robert Wright observed in Time magazine, there's a little bit of the Unabomber in most of us. As for FBI agent Terry Turchi, he wasn't concerned so much about whether the Unabomber's beliefs were legit or not. He was just focused on stopping his bombing campaign. And he was optimistic that publishing the manifesto might lead to some information that would finally help solve the case. Because of a lesson he learned from his high school creative writing teacher who told him that no two people write alike, Turchi was confident someone would recognize the words and call law enforcement. In the six months following the publication, thousands of calls poured into the FBI tip line about the case. And one day... We received a call from the Washington field office, and uh, Joel Moss, who at that time was the supervisor of the uh, the suspect squad, uh, took the call. He heard a voiceover in the office and, and took a call from Washington field, talked to an agent there named Molly, and uh, Molly said, look, uh, I have an individual here who has given me a 23-page essay 
And the 23-page essay was written by an individual named Theodore Kaczynski. The FBI ran the name in their database, the one that included the names of people common to bomb sites. And Ted Kaczynski's name appeared. He had worked at the University of California, Berkeley, where two bombs had been delivered in the 1980s. The FBI immediately stopped all other investigations and started to focus on Kaczynski. When we looked at the 23-page essay and started really focusing on it and compared it with the Unabomber's manifesto, bingo, no two people write alike. And these two documents were, I mean, it was everything that, that we would have hoped it would be. The person who turned over the 23-page essay was David Kaczynski, brother of Ted Kaczynski. David's wife, Linda, was struck by how much the manifesto reminded her of letters and other documents they had received in the past from Ted, who was a gifted mathematician. He had given up academia for a life off the grid in Montana. David and Linda weren't 100% sure, though, if Ted was the Unabomber, So they approached a friend who was a private investigator. She hired a criminal profiler to compare the manifesto with an essay written by Ted in 1971. They concluded there was a pretty good chance that Ted was the Unabomber. That's when David and his lawyer approached the FBI. Following the botched arrests at Ruby Ridge and Waco, Texas, David had one request. Arrest his brother as humanely as possible. FBI agent Max Knoll, who you heard from earlier, was part of a small team sent to Montana to prepare for an arrest of the man who had killed three and injured 24 during a lethal campaign of terror. Knoll thought the least dangerous way to take Kaczynski into custody was just to wait for him to leave his cabin. He sometimes walked or biked into the nearest town for supplies. So they set up surveillance and waited. But unfortunately, Kaczynski didn't leave his property and then a leak to the media pushed things forward. CBS News and uh, 60 Minutes uh, contacted us both on the West Coast and at headquarters in Washington, D.C., and said, we know that you have a suspect, good suspect um, named Krasinski uh, living somewhere in Montana, and we would like to request to be able to go along with you uh, and film the arrest or search warrant. And of course, that's contrary to FBI policy. And we said no. And they said, well, we're going to go with the story uh, on Sunday night uh, if you don't uh, allow us to. We had no idea if he was going to be able to monitor that. We suspected that he could because of some of the things that he had written. We thought he probably had a uh, battery operated radio and he was following in the news and so forth. So we had to make a decision of how do we do that. And we sped, it, we sped the process up. We can't wait anymore. Working together with local FBI agent Tom McDaniel and a United States Forest Service agent, Jerry Burns, who knew Kaczynski, a ruse was hatched that they hoped would get Kaczynski out of his cabin so he could be arrested safely. On April 3rd, 1996, two FBI SWAT teams moved into the area, hiding in the forest around the perimeter of Kaczynski's cabin. Then Agent Knoll and the other two men walked up to the ramshackle building and knocked on the front door. After several knocks, Kaczynski cracked open the door and Forest Service Agent Jerry Burns set the ruse in motion. He told Kaczynski he had brought two men from a mining company who planned on surveying the area in the spring. He said they wanted to know where Kaczynski's corner posts were so the mine surveyors didn't trespass on his land. 
Reluctantly, Kaczynski agreed to come outside to show them. He started to step out of the cabin, and the plan was if he gets within arm's reach, grab him. As soon as he took that step toward Jerry, he stopped, hesitated, and said something to the effect of, I got to get my coat. And he turned, and Jerry immediately grabbed him and snatched him right out of the cabin. And he was shocked and started fighting a little bit, resisting. And big old Tom wrapped the two of them up in a big old bear hug and uh, um, to bring him under control. And I got to be the fortunate person. I got to walk around in front of him, display my FBI credentials to him, identify myself as an FBI agent as he stared down the barrel of my uh, SIG auto-loading handgun. And uh, he complied with our requests and they cuffed him, Terry, uh, or Jerry and Tom cuffed him up and we removed him from the cabin and took him to an elk hunting cabin about a quarter mile away, which we had also rented and had prepared to take him while the evidence team began their search. So it was not dramatic. It was uh, it went as it was planned. And later during the afternoon, as the search wore on out of clear blue sky, he turned to me and he said, Agent No, you know, that ruse you used, that's about the only way you'd have gotten me out of that cabin. In the days leading up to the arrest, there were some in the FBI who thought Kaczynski wasn't the Unabomber. In Terry Turchie's words, people thought they were out of their minds. So what they found inside Kaczynski's cabin was crucial. And it was pretty obvious when you looked into the cabin and read things on these shelves, lining these shelves, that it was a little bomb factory. He's not exaggerating when he says it was a little bomb factory. Inside the dark and gloomy 10 by 4 cabin, agents discovered shelves filled with bottles and jars, and most contained compounds used to make bombs. The shelves also housed pieces of metal and plastic pipes, electrical wire, and other bomb components. As well, agents found some 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments and descriptions of each of Kaczynski's crimes. FBI agents stopped searching the cabin after about 24 hours because they discovered a live bomb wrapped under Kaczynski's bed. The best way to describe the one-bedroom cabin is primitive. Agent Terry Turchie says it is not where he expected they would one day find the man responsible for an increasingly dangerous and sophisticated reign of terror. It was a total contradiction. We were told, for example, the Unabomber had to have access to a foundry to do such perfect jobs of melting metals and aluminum. Well, his foundry turned out to be a hole in the ground in front of um, uh, his cabin. Uh, we, we find the guy with no running water, no, no heat, uh, no, no way to cook inside except his old pot belly stove. Uh, we find a guy who's lived out in the wilderness all these years. Probably one of the true, real survivalists, actually, if you think about it. All these other dudes uh, of, of, you know, late, I mean, they call themselves that, but no, they're not survivalists. But he was. And, um, but he was brilliant. And so that was the problem. Uh, put together the genius, the Harvard professor, or the um, UC Berkeley professor in math, and, uh, and the guy who lives like this, those don't compute. And, and so uh, it's not a surprise, Kathy, that you and I are talking 25 years later, we haven't had any more Unabomber, and, uh, and we're probably not going to uh, 
for another 100 years. And, and let's hope we don't. From all accounts, Ted Kaczynski is a genius. Born in 1942, Kaczynski was raised in and around Chicago. He went to Harvard on a scholarship at age 16. While he was there, the scruffy kid had a difficult time fitting in with the older, buttoned-up Harvard crowd. During his time at Harvard, he also took part in a controversial three-year psychology experiment. Run by respected psychologist Henry A. Murray, the experiment involved verbally humiliating subjects to gauge how they reacted to stress. Many have speculated whether this is the reason, or at least part of the reason, that Kaczynski became the Unabomber. After graduating from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1962, he went on to earn a master's degree and a PhD in math from the University of Michigan. Then in 1967, at the age of 25, he became the youngest ever assistant professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley. But math was unimportant to him. It was just a game he was good at, and he resented his mother's insistence that he was a genius. In 1969, Kaczynski abruptly quit his job at Berkeley, rejecting a promising academic career for a new life as a recluse. He bought some land near Lincoln, Montana, where he built a small, secluded cabin and lived off the land. For our Canadian listeners, you may be interested to know that in the late 60s, Kaczynski took multiple road trips to northern Ontario, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, scouting out potential locations for his cabin. But none panned out. So he settled in Montana on land he purchased with the help of his brother, David. The same brother who helped FBI finally make an arrest in the Unabomber case. David is seven and a half years younger than Ted and says growing up, his brother was kind and compassionate. The last time they saw each other was in 1986 when David visited Ted in Montana and they went backpacking in the mountains. A couple of years later, when David got married, Ted cut off contact other than a couple of terse letters asking for money. The decision to contact authorities was not an easy one for David. Here's his lawyer at a news conference in 1996. This is an extremely difficult situation for a family member. This is a close, loving family. I think David wanted very much to believe that Ted was not involved. David Kaczynski, along with their mother Wanda, attended all of Ted's court proceedings, but Ted did not acknowledge their presence. During the legal proceedings, many of Ted Kaczynski's journals were presented to the court by prosecutors, and they opened a window into his mind, shining some light on why he did what he did. A journal entry from 1971 reads, I act merely from a desire for revenge. I would like to get revenge on the whole scientific and bureaucratic establishment, not to mention communists and others who threaten freedom. But that being impossible, I have to content myself with just a little revenge. Here's Agent Noel. He chose his victims as people who were representational of things that he disliked. He disliked airlines and the airline industry. He disliked computers and the computer science industry. He disliked people, uh, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and people who modified behavior. He disliked government officials. He disliked police officers. Those were all the representational areas that he researched and found people at random that represented those things. And then he sent or placed bombs that they were likely to encounter. 
After a lengthy and complicated legal proceeding in which Kaczynski received a provisional diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, he pleaded guilty to 13 federal bombing offenses that killed three men and seriously injured two others. And he acknowledged responsibility for 16 bombings from 1978 to 1995. In exchange for his guilty plea, Kaczynski avoided the death penalty. In May 1998, he was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. After 20 years, the Unabomber case was finally over. If you're thinking that the FBI just got lucky and the only reason Ted Kaczynski was finally caught was because his brother called the FBI's 1-800-TIP line, Agent Max Knoll would like you to keep this in mind. 59 other brothers gave us information that their brother was in fact the Unabomber. We also had 160 former wives identify their husbands as the Unabomber. We had 409 other family members that said their family member was a Unabomber. But you know what? We only served one search warrant in the history of this case. And guess where it was? It was at Ted Kaczynski's cabin on April 3rd, 1996. That's an astounding fact. That's a basic investigative technique serving a search warrant. And we only served one federally in the entire 17-year history of this case. Kaczynski, who is now 78, lives in a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. He remains a prolific writer corresponding in longhand with hundreds of people and producing essays and books. Kaczynski has published two books, Technological Slavery, The Collected Writings of Theodore J. Kaczynski, a.k.a. The Unabomber, and Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How, both of which expand on the ideas included in his original manifesto. In a report from the 50th reunion of his class at Harvard, Kaczynski gave his occupation as prisoner. Under awards, he listed his life sentence. In 2011, items belonging to Kaczynski were auctioned off by the federal government with proceeds going to surviving victims and the families of the three men who were killed. They had been awarded $15 million in a civil suit against Kaczynski, and after a seven-year legal battle, an appeals court ordered his property be auctioned off to pay some of the settlement. Kaczynski had resisted because he wanted his property donated to his alma mater, the University of Michigan. Kaczynski's journals went for $40,000, and his famous hoodie and sunglasses sold for $20,000. A copy of the manifesto also got $20,000, and a Smith Corona typewriter used to type out the 35,000-word document sold for $22,000. In total, the auction collected about $200,000 for the victims and their families. Kaczynski's whole cabin was also preserved and actually lives in a museum in Washington, D.C. It was taken apart and put back together exactly as it was and is on display as part of an exhibit at FBI headquarters. Kaczynski continues to have followers to this day. Most recently, they were written about in a Wired article in 2018, following a new TV series called Manhunt, Unabomber. The article suggested that interest in Kaczynski surged following the Discovery Channel series, which aired on Netflix. But the followers argue their interest started long before the show. Ironically, the man who despised technology is now the subject of great debate and discussion on the internet, more specifically Twitter. His followers are part of something called Pine Tree Twitter because they often identify themselves by putting pine tree emojis in their names. 
The self-defined primitivists and neo-Luddites share thoughts about the destruction of modern civilization and discuss fringe politics in Twitter group chats or on messaging app Discord. They even recently sent Kaczynski a birthday card. Haven't heard if he wrote them back. Thanks for joining me for this look at the long and complicated investigation into the Unabomber. And thanks to retired FBI agents Max Knoll and Terry Turchi for walking me through the case. They co-wrote a book in 2014 with their colleague Jim Freeman. It's called Unabomber, How the FBI Broke Its Own Rules to Capture the Terrorist Ted Kaczynski. They've written a sequel to the book, which includes some of Kaczynski's own writings. It's called Capturing the Unabomber, the FBI's Inside Story. It's scheduled to be released in May 2021. If you have an idea for a 90s story, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. History of the 90s is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, why not take a minute to rate and review us? This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 